Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Oh boy, so we uh, we start this show of um, political controversies being the topic with the number one controversy of the day being technical difficulties with blog talk once again. How are you doing, Mr. Host? Mr. Host, are you there? Can, can you hear me? How about now, sir? There we go. There you are. I was going to say, boy, we've turned one technical difficulty into <laughs> two. I'm going to have to start speaking to the audience. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, we, we find ways uh, to make it work. We have um, become experts at the, uh, the, the backdoor entry into uh, the blog talk ether. And so uh, no longer are we thrown off by curveballs, even when we're up in the batter's box looking fastball, we can adjust to the curveball these days. We definitely have a backup plan that we uh, have on standby just because of our experiences. But uh, it seems to me today, for some reason, Blog Talk was going through its accounting files and said, wait a second, these guys are paying hardly nothing. Why are we giving them top, we top even, notch? We don't even offer that package anymore. It looks like they've been grandfathered in. <laughs> Why are we giving them top notch engineering? <laughs> oh, boy. What the hell's going on out here? <laughs> oh, man. It's, uh, it's unbelievable. But nevertheless, we're back. It's, uh, it's August. I think the, the last time we spoke to folks, it was maybe. Um, couple of weeks before training camp, everybody who has listened to us over the years knows uh, not only what huge sports fans we are, but what huge football fans we are. The the NFL is king, and that's generally how it is in the sports kingdom for, for anybody who is a, an all-around sports fan. There's something about the NFL, uh, 16 games in a season, every game matters, but training camp is back, so... 
We'll be touching on a little bit of that in the show today for everybody who's listening in. And then we've got some some burning questions, quote-unquote, uh, about some things that are in the current political landscape, both in our field, uh, the field of recovery, uh, as well as our geographic location, uh, being that we operate a program right here in the Bay Area in California. So looking right. forward to it to be should be some good stuff right drop dead smack in the middle of silicon valley right right smack in the middle of it um so it should be should be an exciting show i'm i am prepared for it and uh but as promised in our last show we did state to the listeners that we would uh we would give the training camp edition, the training camp update uh, in the next show, and here we are, so let's get right into it. I'll begin by asking you, Mr. Host, and, and I want to see if, if my experience aligns with yours. Uh, but the older you get, do you find yourself uh, getting more uh, superstitious or less? When it comes to sports? Or just in general? When it comes to sports, yeah. When it, when it oh. comes to sports, jinxes and superstitions, the, the older you get, you find yourself... Uh, falling more into uh, becoming very superstitious or uh, less so? I don't know if it's superstitious or more sports-related anxiety to the point that I don't even want to hear up, up the, <laughs> I don't even want to hear updates or breaking news or anything like that because I'm afraid it's going to be someone has torn their ACL or something crazy <laughs> yeah, right. has happened. Right, I don't want exactly, to know. exactly, because I because I felt like starting our little training camp update segment with with good news on the injury front, generally speaking, in the NFL, and I said, you know what, I'm not going to get into specifics or touch on that because the jinx might be in. So we won't talk about injuries, but one update I did get to my phone, and and this will actually segue beautifully into kind of the only the only big news coming out of training camp for any of your big three teams, uh, that being the holdout of the stud running back of the Dallas Cowboys, but got an update to my phone today that uh, Dallas uh, has, as of today, and and potentially sooner, but there was no information sooner, but as of today, has deals on the table for Dak Prescott, Ezekiel Elliott, and Amari Cooper, and that said deals, if they were to be signed, would make each one of them uh, top five highest paid at their respective positions. Um, And that's all it said. So it didn't say number one or highest paid in their respective positions, so I'm going to assume it's not number one, but that Dallas, Jerry Jones, and family over there have uh, put deals on the table for each one of their big three that if they were signed and accepted – uh, would make each one of them top five paid in their position. Your thoughts? So the word on the street is, uh, yeah, so Dak absolutely is closer to, you know, 
bottom five than near near top, meaning he's closer to being the fifth than to the first in terms of highest sure, paid. Which to me, and, 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 and I'll interject offer. real quick, mm-hmm. uh, as good as I believe Dak is or what I've seen out of him, I would still say even if it was number five dead last, uh, I think he'd be coming out ahead because I don't really see him as a top five quarterback in the league. But I'll no, put that not. out there. And what we mean by that is, is if he's going to occupy that much of the cap, that means you must have the ability to make up for what the team is going to have to get rid right. of in order to pay you. Right. And and he's just right. not that he's not that dude yet. He's not that dude yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amari Cooper is probably somewhere in the middle there. Um, word on the street is that he was offered. Remember, he's getting paid $14 million this year, and the offer is sixteen five. Um, I think yeah. they'll probably settle somewhere between, uh, you know, let's say around 18, which I think is fair for him. Okay, um, sure. And also – I'd say – I'd say – I'd say I'd put Amari – I and I'd have to actually look at the receivers on paper. Uh, when he is when he's performing uh, to his ability, uh, he's really really good. I don't know if he's top five, but I would definitely say he's top ten. I could put him in top five, but the one thing they say he hasn't shown is consistency. So he hasn't put together right. four straight years, you know, of consistent play. Um, he had a drop. Right those two years in Oakland, for whatever reason, whatever injuries, whatever happened, he had a drop. And if you had a drop, they don't really care why you had it. The fact of the matter is that you had a drop. So, um, but he can't sneeze. And and remember, you know, NFL contracts are real tricky the way they work. So, you know, you can get like the new deal that this guy, Michael Thomas of the New Orleans Saints signed a hundred million dollars. And you could say, okay, well, on the surface, for five years, $100 million, that's $20 million a year. He's got $61 million guaranteed, so it's really a three-year deal for $61 million. Right. But if, he, if he, but if he plays all five years, then he'll end up probably getting the $100 million. Uh, but they're only on the hook. They only guaranteed $61 million. So I would think Amari want to come close to that in guarantees. Uh, but he's young enough, just like the other guy, where he can probably make all of the money. And and sure. so if he gets a five-year deal, he's 24. I'm sorry, turned 25 this summer. He'll be 30. So he'll still have enough to get another deal. You know, if he if he right, maintains. Right. Yeah, because receivers. Yeah, receivers who are who are crisp route runners. Uh, you can play into your to your young to mid 30s. You might lose a step. You know, Top end speed step, burner, yeah. but. That's not that's not necessarily his game anyway. I mean, he's fast, but he's not he's not got that top end, you know, that the some receivers have in the league. Um, so so as long as and he he was known when he was coming up in Oakland, uh, and then I'm sure over there in Dallas, um, he's known as a good route runner. So as long as, as you're a crisp route runner, you can play in your mid 30s. Yeah, because the two quote unquote top guys right now. Um, Julio Jones and Antonio Brown, both of those guys are 30. And they're still talking about them at 30 as they're the top guys. And they're talking about them like they got a few years to go holding on to those top spots. You know what I'm saying? Sure. um, Now let's move over to Mr. Elliott. 
Okay. I don't know, yeah, know what's going to happen with this dude. So word on the street is that offer was more than Le'Veon Bell, but not more than Gurley. So I think it was a first offer. Um, they don't say what, because word on the street is that Zeke's camp has made a counter offer, but they don't. We don't know what that counter was. Um, yeah. However, Stephen Jones did say back in March, April, when he was questioned about Zeke's, you know, contract, and he said, "We we understand that it starts at the Gurley deal and goes from there." Well, if it starts at the Gurley deal, Gurley's at fourteen million. Right. So. I'm not sure why they offered They might have offered him 13.1, I believe is what they offered him, because he still has two years left on his deal. But Gurley had sure, two years left sure. also when they, when they you know, gave him a new contract. But you know what? They say Deke, Zeke is dug in. He is absolutely not reporting until he has a new contract. And Jerry Jones says, don't worry about it. I'm not worried about it. We'll get the deal done. So we'll see what happens. In Jones, you all trust. Well, we have no choice if, right uh, now. If, but I'll tell you what I won't do. Are accurate, what's that? Uh, I, I am 100% on their side, on the Cowboys' side, in terms of don't do anything that destroys your cap arrangement that will prevent you from signing the players that are coming behind these three, the Jalen right. Smiths, the Byron Jones, the Van Der Reshes, and, and all of the supporting cast that you need if you want to keep this window of, quote-unquote, two to three to three to four years of a Super Bowl team, caliber team, together. So yep. we'll see what happens. And if, uh, and if reports are accurate, it sounds like, Mr. Ezekiel Elliott is uh, enjoying tacos with my cousins down south. <laughs> well, I hope he ain't eating too much. I hope he's working out like he did last time. Come back chiseled yeah. and ready to go. Yeah. Whatever that may be. <laughs> All right. Well, good stuff. Good stuff. There's not a... There's not much to report from my side of things, and I, I'll consider my side of things to be the uh, and myself to be the voice of our local listeners. Uh, <laughs> other than you know you've got uh, you've got your star quarterback coming coming back from an ACL an ACL surgery and in rehab, and uh, you know he was he was given a full clearance by the team doctors at the beginning of camp. And so he's out there and showing some some signs of rust, you know, in, in the throwing in the throwing mechanics and things of that nature, which is fine. You would, I guess, at least for me as a fan, I would expect that. What what I want to hear are reports that there's there's no real rust in terms of movement or that you know his, his knee is not acting up and and all the uh, all the reports are that that's been okay and that's. That's really it. I mean, there is, I guess I'll say, because I know you were, if I recall correctly, and we may have even talked about it on this show, but coming out of college, you were a big Joey Bosa fan, were you not? I was, yes. 
Yeah, and so the the word is from the folks who've seen it, and, and Joey will say this himself, but that might just be uh, what an older brother does, but that Nick Bosa is really impressing everybody at 49ers camp and that he looks like uh, his brother 2.0. And maybe even uh, maybe even improved in that he's got a little more size than his brother, uh, which yeah. is which it, it, he's showing in camp that he also has the ability to play the run. And it's not right. that Joey uh, is is a pushover when it comes to the run, but that's not what he's known for. Right. Uh, but that Nick Bosa is blowing up running plays in the backfield, so that's right. uh, we're we're happy to hear that. I agree. He is bigger than his older brother, so I expect him to be able to hold up. Now, is he he's playing defensive end? Correct. Yep. Okay. Yep. Okay. He is he he is playing defensive end. Um and so uh yeah, I mean, what a bloodline that is. Huh? You was it uh not father, but maybe uncle uncle or father and then both brothers all draft all first round draft picks in the NFL and all pass rushers. Hmm. So this is like this is like the Mannings. Although was Eli was Eli a first round draft pick? No. Yeah. Eli Eli was a was a the number 2 pick and then it was traded, remember? That's right. That's right. Yeah. So uh so yeah, similar to the Mannings and quarterbacks with Archie yeah. and two sons you got the Bosa's. Uh, maybe they were they were bred to take down the Mannings, mm-hmm. the passers and the pass rushers. Yep. So we shall yep. see. But the season and for the listeners, uh, first preseason game as it would have it, they will pit the host against the co-host, as the Dallas uh-huh. Cowboys will be in our backyard here playing Forty ers When is that? That's uh, this Saturday. Okay. This Saturday, uh, I want to say kickoff is either 5 or 6 p.m. Well, it'll be a lot of uh, players from number 54 through 90. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We'll get we'll get a good look at the at the camp bubble. <laughs> so, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting for the first 4 minutes. <laughs> Yeah, they've already, at least from the Niners' side, I haven't heard anything out of Dallas, but at least from the Niners' side, they've already said Garoppolo will not will not play in, in uh, the first preseason game as mm-hmm. he still warms the knee back up in training camp. He's not slated to get, give it a go until game two. Uh, but, yeah, should be should be interesting. Everybody knows, even though you and mm-hmm. I know we, we've been fans for long enough and the preseason doesn't mean a thing and you're watching – you know, half the players out there won't even be on the team come opening day, uh, but you still get excited for that for that first for that first preseason game that that feel yeah. of football being back. Yep. I used to watch so, the Hall of Fame game, but I didn't I didn't see it this yeah. year the Hall of Fame game. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't I didn't see it either. I didn't see it either. But yeah, you got your vanilla offenses and your base defenses, but it's it's always exciting for football to be back. But yeah. That's it for the uh, for the training camp report, and then uh, shall we get into the topic du jour, Mr. Host? Let's do it. 
Let's do it. We got burning questions. I'll I'll read how you've got the description written out here, and then uh, maybe you you throw a dart at a board and see which one we we cover first. But uh, inquiring minds want to know the opioid crisis. So this is burning question number one. Uh, is it the end all be all? Uh, we also are going to cover today the basic makeup of the addict and how has it changed, if at all, over the past 10 years. And lastly, is there any place to live for the recovering addict here in the greater Bay Area? So we're hitting uh, some some hot topic items uh, in the show today. Well, I want to start with... Uh the opioid crisis question. Um, All right, let's do it. It's obviously still in the news. Uh, we hear about it <clears throat> every day. We had, I've done a couple of uh, phone surveys over the last uh, six to eight months, and both times, at the end of the survey, and the surveys regards to the field that we're in, um, and different universities are doing studies, and so um, they contact San Mateo County. San Mateo County refers them to provide things like that. So they both had the same almost end of survey question, which was about how are you guys impacted by the opioid crisis? And I found out that we answered the same way other providers in our area answered. And they even said it's kind of consistent across the state, and that is the quote-unquote opioid crisis is not that big out here where we are. Um, oh. it's, it's not the number one driver of treatment, although to our chagrin, <laughs> you know, the powers that be, i.e., you know, the gold holders, he who holds the gold, uh, that's kind of every everything is being looked at through those lenses. Yeah. You know, if, if you went on to the, the SAMHSA, S-A-M-S-H-A, Substance Abuse and Mental Health uh, website for the federal government, you know, almost every grant, in this arena, it has to do with something on opioids. So, to be frank and to be honest, it um, it kind of bothers me because not only because it's not the only thing that we're we're talking about out here, but I want to say the name of a gentleman who old day toppers might know, Benny Quabus. Um, who was the administrator for Daytop over Sullivan County in upstate New York. So all the programs that were in Sullivan County, he was the administrator over. And during one of my training classes, he started talking about prescription drug abuse and said that, you know, that was the first time that I heard, now mind you, this is back in 1989, that it was the it was there were more prescription drug abusers in the country than illicit drug abusers. That was back in 1989. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, and during that time, at least on the, you know, 
East Coast, you know, what was killing communities back then was, you know, crack cocaine, cocaine, heroin, etc. Those those were the big three back then. And still are the big three in some areas. And I've heard some people say, and, I, and I, unfortunately I know this is controversial and I would have to agree with them, but there wasn't all of this um, national outcry when the crack epidemic hit. And just like the opioid abuse crisis, the crack epidemic hit all over the country too. I don't think so much in middle America, but in big, but in, you know, it hit in all the big cities and the meat in all the medium cities. Yeah. Now the opioid crisis is hitting places that weren't affected by the crack epidemic. Okay. And so you have a different um, ethnicity, race, and cultural aspect to the communities that were affected by the different epidemics, let's call it that. And what makes it worse is, as I stated earlier, is that we're sitting in a part of the country that's not being overwhelmed by the opioid abuse issue. We have it. We have people who are, you know, come into the program that are addicted to opioids and all of that stuff. We have that, but that's not the, you know, that's, it's not the overwhelming uh, favorite, if you will, just to use a sports term. Um, sure. But, but it seems like that's where all the attention is going. And so I wonder now, as a, as a person in the field, I wonder, okay, well, what about those people who are still using heroin, those people who are still using crack cocaine, those people who are still using cocaine, people who are still drinking and, and, and addicted to alcohol? You know, those haven't gone away. They've just been pushed out of the limelight. And to me, it's unfortunate that if you're in the limelight, that's what gets the attention and the focus. When right, all, it is, right. all, all it is, Mr. Producer, and you can ask anybody that's been around a while, they'll all say the same thing. It's just a flavor of the day. Because all of them has had their time in the limelight. But if you, th- if you think about, for example, let's pull out of there heroin, okay? Heroin has had multiple times in the limelight. You know, it was the thing in the early to mid-70s, and then it kind of cooled down. You know, cocaine had a little bit of thing going in the late 70s, early 80s. That kind of cooled down. Crack had a good run. It had like almost a 10-year run, okay? That kind of cooled down. And then you had a mixture of all three, you know, kind of running at the same level. That kind of cooled down. And all the while, by the way, uh, you know, alcoholism is still just chugging along, you know, keeping yeah, its pace, right. keeping its pace, you know what I mean? But that's no longer in the limelight yeah. has, and, and pretty much has, has never been in the limelight past its initial, you know, phase in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So now you have this thing which is not old to people who've been around 
you know, because Mr. Producer, look at the adolescents we had in the late in the in the mid two thousands who were using anything and everything they can get their hands on, and we were like, "What the hell's wrong with you guys?" Yeah, what happened right. To, I remember what, that. Yeah, what happened to just? You know, I get it if you still want to get high, but what happened to getting high off of things like you know, you know, getting a beer, drink, you know, smoking weed or whatever? These guys would go to the supermarket and steal cold medicine, cough syrup, and cough syrup, and yeah. drink that. I'd be like, what the hell's wrong with y'all? So y'all yeah, not even good I addicts. Remember, I remember it distinctly. So, you know, it's it's. We have to be careful that just because something's in the limelight, you know, what happens when it's no longer in the limelight? Does it mean that the problem has, has been solved, the problem has gone away? Absolutely not. People have been abusing prescription medication for decades, for decades, okay? And, again, being frank about it and speaking truth, you know, it's when it hits certain communities, then it becomes something that really hits into the limelight in terms of uh, solutions, addressing it, putting funding towards it, and things of that nature. Meanwhile, all the other drugs that are being abused elsewhere, what what, what happens to those folks? It's not so. If I come into treatment and, I, and I'm a cocaine addict, I'm not as important anymore. There's not enough resources geared towards just good old-fashioned drug treatment. You know, now it's almost like a, um, you know, like a cafeteria plan or, you know, like a, uh, you know, a menu, an a la carte, if you will, that, you know, oh, your opioids, we we got this over here for you specifically and specially because you're special. When, no, I don't care what drug of choice you have, okay, the effects on that, the effects on you of that choice may be different. And so your road to recovery may be affected by that, but just as terms of treating the addict, that doesn't change. But if you look, you read, and you hear, you know, you listen, you know, to what's going on, it's almost like, you know, no, this is a special, specialized area of drug treatment. Well, let's say for argument's sake that that is true. That is the case. This is a special, specialized area of drug treatment. Well, I'll tell you what's not special and specialized, and that's the addict. Mm. So now, if we're if if funding, attention, and focus, research, etc., are going to be determined by, um. You know the 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 particular drug that's in vogue, or plural drugs, because it's not just. I know they say we we use the term the opioid crisis or opioid abuse, okay, you know, but there are other prescription drugs that people are abusing too that aren't opioid based. Uh, you know, you got all of the antidepressants, you got all of the anti-anxieties, you got all of the um um. What's those medications that people use to relax? Um, oh, like the, yeah, the, what, benzos or? Yeah, 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 Valium and all that stuff, right? 
Um, so yeah, you have those all are of, Yeah, all of that. And so, you know, people are using all of them, and or I should say abusing all of them in, in various ways. So... So the side effect, here's a negative side effect to, because unfortunately what happens in government is when something gets enough attention, and especially if people have OD'd and people have died and that number is 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 high, so if we were, if we were for a couple of years averaging, you know, like 60,000 deaths from people OD'ing on Opioids. The only thing I don't know about that stat is that it just include opiates, period. Not necessarily prescription opioids, but opiates, opioids, the whole family of those type of drugs. Street drugs and pharmaceutical combined. Because people were ODing off of heroin for years, right? As far as I remember. Right, right. And there wasn't a lot of um, media uproar. About that now is that because it was happening in 125th Street in Harlem, and not Main Street in uh, you know in New Hampshire somewhere? Is that the reason? I'm just saying. Right. Do you know how many people? A lot of us uh, day toppers that are around know so many people that we were in treatment with. That we heard, you know, ended up ODing and dying. Many. Oh, I can I can imagine a ton. And that's only a tip of the iceberg of the amount that that has actually, you know, cumulatively, OD'd and died. Not only just on the Eastern Seaboard, but just nationally. And I don't recall at all ever. Okay, either back then in the late '80s, throughout the '90s. Through current, I don't recall there being a, you know, a big thing made out of out of all the people who are dying from her- street heroin overdosing and dying. So, as my father used to say, "Be that as it may." Um, it is what it is. I don't like it. I certainly. Me personally, I, I, I almost nowadays, and I've stopped doing this a long time ago. But you know how we used to sometime at some point in time in our getting to know you process of the the client who has come in, we get around to asking them if we have an opportunity to interact with them. You know what drugs were they doing out there? Okay, that that ha- that's not even part of my repertoire. <laughs> anymore because ultimately well the the only caveat I give is it's someone who's an alcoholic because I have a special message for them but ultimately what difference does it make because it's not going to change anything that we say or do in terms of you getting into recovery and being a success in your recovery it's not going to change anything or too much of anything I should say your comments yeah, no, uh, I I agree, I agree. And then speaking, speak. I mean, and it's funny that you say the alcoholics and having a different message for them because uh, that's always generally how it is. And, and I think I can actually recall a time or two uh, when you have great as a family with a <clears throat> with a little hour seminar data session, 
and uh, and then differentiating the alcoholics while still under the same roof. And of course, uh, addiction needing to be battled and personal demons needing to be battled, but having that extra the cherry on top of the Sunday, if you will, for the alcoholics, um, because they are obviously, um, you know, in a world where every, every time they drive by a billboard, every time they're in the middle of watching a game, uh, every time they turn on the radio, uh, you, you're destined to have your drug of choice uh, being marketed as alluring and refreshing and the perfect thing on a hot summer's day. Uh, and so they, they've got a, a little extra on their battle. But, no, generally speaking, um, you know, they're, we're addicts are addicts. And whether or not you're, you're battling heroin, right, and then, like you said, so the opioid crisis, right, but then there, there's still the meth addicts and uh, the addicts who are doing, uh, well, so the, the prescription drugs and, and kind of like you alluded to or pointed out, uh, prescription drugs do not need to end at uh, opiates. Uh, there are several prescription drugs, like you had mentioned, Valiums and, and, and Xanax and things of that nature that are not opioid uh, or opiate-based but are still being abused, um, that the addict needs help. And just because the, like you, the flavor of the month or the flavor of the year um, for, for who knows, for, for political reasons or, or otherwise, uh, that something is being thrown under the microscope. And that's not to say that everything that falls outside of that lens needs to be forgotten because um, we are still dealing with them in all shapes and sizes uh, with plenty of different uh, quote-unquote drugs of choices, and, and everybody needs the help equal, for sure. Right, right. You know, you mentioned one that I even forgot about, methamphetamine. That was yeah. That, that that as huge as the opioids are in in the other parts of the country. That's how meth was out here. Yep. Every, everything yep. was meth, 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 meth. So we've we've yeah, kind right, of exactly. we've, we've kind of been there in our own crisis out here that was ruled by one particular drug that was just overwhelming. You know everybody. We've been there, but now you hardly hear anything about it. People, I mean, people are still using it, obviously, but the whole, you know, what, what do you want to call crisis. it? Yeah, the whole, you know, it's almost like the whole disaster of meth, you know, somehow just got lifted. And I wonder where, where did it go? What happened? What right. happened? We didn't lick it. It's not like, you know, we, we beat meth back, you know, wherever they make it from, back across the border or back to the Midwest or whatever. It actually, you know, I, I don't know if it came from here, the West Coast, and worked its way east, or if it was in the middle of the country and worked its way west. I don't know which, which one it was. Uh, what I do know is that when I was routinely going back east, you know, it was, it was almost like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. We're still dealing with, you know, crack, heroin, and and what have you back here. What the hell is meth? Right, right. Now I'm sure everything is everywhere now since we're in such a, uh, <laughs> you know, technologically advanced society that uh, if somebody finds, I mean, put it this way, 
fentanyl is is just from what we haven't heard doesn't seem to be huge out here where as where it might be in some midwestern states and other um Atlantic coast states um but I'm sure it's you know out and about because i I know of clients who that was kind of listed on their thing. Um, but it wasn't like they were just using that. You know, most addicts are garbage heads. If you, if that's what's, if that's what's ruling in their environment, that's what they'll use. It's like when people used to ask me, "Hey, you know, did you ever use heroin?" I said, "No," and, and I always add a caveat. I said, "I can't." And if you ask me, "Hey, you know, you know, why didn't I use use it, or would I have not used it if it was available?" I can't answer that question because. What was around at that time were marijuana, cocaine, crack cocaine, and I used all three of those. Who's to say that if heroin was the thing in that area that my peers were using all that stuff, that I wouldn't have indulged in that also? I can't honestly say, oh, no, I had to draw the line there. I drew the line at smoking marijuana at one point. Right, right, right. So... How can I sit there and say, oh, no, I, you know, look, look, I'll do some weed, I'll do some coke, and I'll even do some crack, but I will absolutely not. That is crossing the line, do heroin. I could never say that. Because everything that was around in our little small little circle of living, I used. Right. <clears throat> And if my mother's listening, uh, I won't cop to anything. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Oh, boy, exactly. So I don't know, Mr. Producer. Every time I hear it on the TV about the opioid crisis, it just uh, just digs me the wrong way. <clears throat> yeah, like, I'm in the same boat. I'm in the same boat. I wouldn't say necessarily... I mean, I do differentiate a little bit in my mind what they are referring to versus what we see in our field and what we work with generally. Um, I think it's more geared toward uh, the pharmaceutical industry and the amount uh, of money that that opiates are making uh, in the pharmaceutical industry, the amount of money that is involved in that whole process from – from manufacturing to distributing to prescribing. Um, and, and so when I hear about the crisis that, they, that, that you speak of, uh, that you hear about on the 6 o'clock news or whatever the case may be, um, I don't necessarily look at that as them talking about uh, for addicts necessarily or for what it is that we deal with, uh, rather the, the, the money and the politics behind um, – Everything else that goes into that. Well, one one point you made, which I I did want to comment on, was the um, first of all, someone did mention. I thought it was a, a great observation that part of the reason why it's probably other than the obvious, people have died. Okay, um, the pharmaceutical companies are an easy target. Okay, uh, for some of the things that they do. So they make themselves an easy target because you don't see the same level of focused venom from the politicians, okay, towards the illegal 
drug purveyors. You know what I'm saying? <clears throat> you don't you don't see that same dogged determination to stamp it out or or to address it in a in a in a solutions based way rather than um wasting our money, which is what they do. So but the one of the things that the gentleman said was that, you know, think about that a, a lot of the news is coming out surrounding in the surrounding, you know, not just nearby, but I mean, you know, the the states around the Washington, D.C. area. You know what I'm saying? So the news of 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 this crisis is easily obtainable for the politicians to then utilize. I mean, the, the fact that almost all the grants coming out of the federal government for, for, for treatment are geared toward this in one way, shape, or form, it's kind of, it's unbelievable. Because they're basically saying, yeah. well, if, you're, if people that are coming into your program or in your area, the region of the country, are primarily using this, that, you know, not, not opioids, but something else, that, oh, well, sorry, we don't want to tell you. So their politics is a part of it, unfortunately. Yeah. So, so we'll see. Yeah, we'll see how long it's you know, we'll see how long it stays. As you said, the flavor of the the month, flavor of the year, or flavor of the decade. Who knows? We'll see how long it lasts. We certainly yeah. we want to be clear though. We certainly uh we certainly want to see a significant decrease in in the in the deaths that are occurring from this obviously um and you know it's a fine line you have to walk because you don't want to penalize people who are using some of these pharmaceuticals responsibly to deal with real world and real life issues um and quality of life issues that 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 they've been able to 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 mitigate some of the negative effects of whatever is going on with them because of some of these medications. Um, and the last thing, you know, I hate when people have to then, people who are doing the right thing have to be put through the grill, have to be, you know, made to, you know, go through red tape of bureaucracy because of the irresponsibility of other people. Right. And everybody gets lumped in. It's not like let you be judged and based on what you're doing with your doctor and your care team and all of that stuff, no, because other people in some other faraway place are being irresponsible and abusing it and selling it on the street and doing all kinds of craziness, it's going to impact you. Absolutely. That's all I got, Mr. Producer, on that burning question. I think we... uh... I think we beat up the question as much as it could be beat up, and it's on the record. It's in the archives, and I think it's pretty clear where we stand. Yep. What do we got? Uh, what are you going to throw at us next? So this one, I was just minding my own business, doing some plane watching. And That's how it all begins. Doing some plane watching in the backyard. And... I was just wondering to myself, keep in mind, we've always been, when I say we, I'm I'm talking about all of us pretty much, we've always been of the mindset that, look, the addict is the addict. 
They're going to do what they do. And if you look at this addict versus that addict, you'll see tremendous similarities in what they do. It may manifest itself differently, or the outcomes may be different, but what they're doing is very similar. So when I was thinking to myself, but there seems to be, and I could be wrong. That's why I'm just throwing this question out there. There seems to be something different about the addicts of yesteryear and the addicts of today, today meaning i.e. the last, let's say, five to seven years. Now, Mr. Producer, let's be clear. I do not want to be that person <laughs> who is, you know, like the old man on the, on the, on the veranda, you know, saying, kids these days. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I don't want right. to be that. I don't, I don't want to be that dude. Um, but I still have to ask the question: Is there something different? Something different going on? Is there something different about the addicts that we have seen and their evolution in the last five or seven years, based versus the addict from the '80s and the '90s? And even the very early 2000s. Um, and and I know these are all questions. I'm not even come up with any answers yet. I'm just asking questions. And do those addicts of today, again, last five to seven years to current, reflect something in society at large? So it's not th- specific to them as addicts. But they just bear the traits of a larger societal change and what have you. And we just see it manifesting itself in, in the, the clients that we've got and we received. Um, so it's not really them or the fact that, you know, they're addicts. It's, it's them in to, today's society. Of course, we're all in today's society, but, but them being an addict in today's society – I haven't come up with any answers yet. I just got a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, ten years. Uh, okay, so we're looking at we're looking at a we're looking at a time frame here. The makeup of the attic. You know, so um, Mr. Producer, can I can I stop you for one second? Sure, when you, sure, sure. When, when you said 10 years, I, I just started looking at what year. We're in 2019. I'm sorry. We're t- it's 15 years. Because I started noticing a change, and I think you did too, around that 2004, 2005, 2006-ish period. Right, right. Know, well, we see, start- Go ahead. For me um, – one of the one of the variables, if you will, that that is difficult to tease out was at that time, um, at least I was working at the adolescent branch of the program, right? And so it was it was clear, kind of like we spoke about at the beginning of the show today, um, that there was certainly a change in at least the ways the adolescents were willing to get high or attempt to get high, the things that they were willing to do. And I I think we actually made a show about it. Might've even made a couple shows about it, but like the, uh, the entitlement era 
um, and, and seeing entitlement kind of soar through the roof uh, where, I don't know, uh, you know, maybe, uh, you know, back in the day, for example, if you had somebody making a phone call home uh, to, to, to mom or dad or grandma or grandpa or whomever it may be, uh, even at their worst, their, their most upset day in treatment or whatever issues there were, there was always like a, an undertone of respect when speaking to mom or dad or grandma or grandpa, wh- whoever it was. Uh, and it got to a point where I was as a staff member witnessing and or even screening phone calls uh, from some of these adolescents, you know, talking to grandma, telling her where she could go. And I, you know, I was, I was so taken back, taken aback, listening to this, like, you know, I even confronted some of these, you know, these, these young teenage boys that were, you know, uh, you know, a couple of years away from entering adulthood and becoming teen, you know, becoming men, uh, young men and, and asking them, yo man, like, when did it become cool to speak to grandma like that? Like, you know, I, I get it in the streets, you, you know, or, or whatever, in your, your social group, your circle, whoever you run with, you might talk smack to, you know, the, the people you don't like from the other side of the block, or you might run your mouth in a 2v2 game to the people that you're, you're hooping against. But I don't ever recall there being a time where it was good with anybody in the group for someone to speak to grandma like that. And, uh, and I'm talking, man, I'm talking S-bombs. I'm talking, and so... Definitely in the adolescent world, the, the makeup changed from, you know, what used to be acceptable behavior or, or who and where your frustration or anger could be vented versus, you know, even at the worst of things when you still kept respect for, for certain adults in your life. And, um, and so we definitely saw that change. I can't speak – um, you know, to, to the adults because I didn't work with the adults at that time. And, and I don't know if you would agree with me, but I think it might be fair to say that um, a lot of the adolescent program, a lot of the work was done uh, not so much on, you know, how uh, somebody might define quote-unquote hardcore addiction, a drug addiction, but more so kind of on behavior and decision-making skills and things that teenagers generally speaking need some help with um, versus, you know, in the adult branch with the adult branch, you were working more with kind of textbook definition of addiction. Um, And so I definitely saw a behavior swing. And so as you put here in the, in the topic, the makeup of the addict um, behaviorally, there was a swing in the adolescent branch um, and, and hard for me to, to speak about the adult branch, but, but, uh, I will say that, um, uh, what, what I believe the underlying issues that needed to be worked on or that, that the clients needed to address, um, generally remained the same, but the presentation, uh, what they would come into treatment presenting outwardly, um, and the stances they would take uh, certainly shifted. So, so the symptom, if you will, the symptom uh, looked different and presented differently, um, but the the source or the cause uh, remained the same. 
Mr. Producer, I'll never forget the first time when I was standing outside the staff office, like halfway in the doorway, halfway in the hallway, <clears throat> and a client was on at the adolescent facility, and a client was on the phone. I don't know who they were talking to, and the I was just horrified at what was coming out this kid's mouth. Um, and by the way, the girls were worse um, towards. Yeah. Um, and, and it was the mother that he was talking to. The expression on my face, of course, because when, when like you and I, when, when you come from a place where, you know, you don't, you know, the thought of even talking like that to your parents or an adult so much who hasn't harmed you or what have you, um, just never enters your cerebral cortex. So, you know, when you when you see it, it's very uh, startling. I was like, who who are you just talking to? That was my mom. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Nah, man. I, I don't know what you and your mom got going on. I don't know what y'all got going on, but while you're here in this program, you will not talk to her like that. Right. That can't, that can't be. You have to do that behind my back. But, um, exactly. Exactly. I, I could speak a little bit for the adults. They... There was, I, how can I phrase this? There seemed to be less um, independent, but family. I hope this makes sense. Less independent, but simultaneously family problem solving. They were more okay, inclined. Okay. Less independent, so me, the person alone by myself, and me together with my other family members, okay, problem solving. So I was more prone, and when I say I, I'm talking about myself as if I was in the program the last five to seven years, more prone than my predecessors to look for staff to solve something. Okay, right, got it. You know, that was, you know, somewhere along the line, that became okay, whereas in decades past, that thought just would not enter your mind to go to staff because it was all about your peers and you and your peers solving whatever problems came up in the house. And as staff, our role was just to be bumper, you know, bumper guards to... Just make sure everyone was doing what they're supposed to be doing, but and only interjecting into the mix when it was absolutely necessary. But we wanted the clients to develop those problem-solving skills, conflict resolution skills, and take ownership of the house and solve problems in the house on their own with us looking on and interjecting where appropriate. That became – that flipped somewhere along the line, and it became a, a natural instinct – to when, whenever any issues came up, small, medium, or large, the, per, the first thing was staff. When that when when staff used to be the last thing. Yep. Yeah, I got that. I can. I see can. That. I can imagine. I can see it in my mind's eye as I'm talking about it. If when I was at Swan Lake, if there was an issue in the house, and it got to the point that. For whatever reason, we weren't dealing with it, solving it, etc. And it worked its way up to the senior counselors because the senior counselors were the enforcers. 
Yeah, the pit bulls. And, I mean, to put it this way, what you would hope for is that you would never, ever see the senior counselors. You would, you would never hope. You would hope that the chief of the house didn't have everyone call everyone to the dining room, morning meeting style, and you're just chilling, waiting for the, you know, it's after dinner, and you're just waiting there, and you see the senior counselors walk in. You know it's going to be bad. They never come in. Right. You, never, you never sit like that and have them come in to say, okay, we're going to the movies. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Everybody hop in the van. That's right. It was, and if it was on a Friday, it was worse because that means people who had out of the house requests and were going downstate, passes were being pulled, everyone the house is being closed, <laughs> yeah. you know the whole nine, yeah. and so yeah, it it made you want to be. That's the last resort. Is we're you know they're going to see. Oh, we have to solve this problem. This is your house, and you want us to solve it because you know it's no different than when. When parents deem, oh, we now have to get involved to, to solve what's going on in the house, you know, you're not going to like the resolution we come to. So you try, especially like I come from a big family, you try and work it out amongst yourselves before the parents have to step in. Because their goal when they step in is to absolutely, positively mitigate that problem so they don't ever have to address it again. Of course they will. But that's their goal. That's my goal. When I'm trying to solve a problem with my with my two girls, I'm trying to solve it in a fashion I don't have I don't want to have to address this again. Right. You know what I'm saying? And so as a staff person, if something like that happens, I have two issues going on. One is I'm not happy that you, you weren't able to resolve and, and nine times out of ten, let's just put it out there, it's nonsense. Just nonsense, everyday human nonsense. Okay, Absolutely and now we have to, agree. and now we have to get involved and solve it. So we're not happy about that. So that that to me has been something that I've seen. And then you tie into that, Mr. Producer, as we spoke about in the show some time ago, the entitlement um, aspect of it, which was, and and the reason I believe we can say that is because. The only reason we did the show is because we noticed it because it was something that was ne- was rarely pr- present and certainly not prevalent in the clients from yesteryear. There was a whole lot more gratitude and you know appreciating being here than you know what are you talking about? I'm so you know. Didn't you uh, send the limo to pick me up to come here? Yeah, right, right. So, you know, I know we started out with it as a question, but there was, for me, enough evidence out there to say that there's some kind of a change. Now, it begs the larger question, as I spoke about, is that unique to the addicts and treatment, or is there something in the larger society that's present? That's uh, that's the million dollar question right there. Well, let's look back. You know, nineties, early two thousands. You know, 
I can't say that there was this overwhelming culture of entitlement, um, culture of, you know, you know, victimhood, so to speak, that we have now. And I don't know if it's by osmosis or, or what, that it, it works its way into the fabric. And in, in every arena you go in, and I guess in certain age groups, because if we see a person, let's say, that's in their mid-40s and above, or let's say 40 and above, that has that mindset, I would really want to know, okay, well, where the hell does that come from? Because I think I can understand in terms of a societal impact with the the Generation X's and the Millennials and whatnot, because um, this is what they're exposed to. Sure. But it, it causes, how can I phrase this? It causes great difficulty for them and a little bit for us in treatment because treatment is all about accountability, taking responsibility. Um, it's not about victimhood. It's not about um, entitlement. It's no free lunch. You know, it's, it's, it's a lot of those unwritten philosophies that are on that wall. And that the, none of, this is what we did our show on. Those unwritten philosophies do not jive well, do not mix well with entitlement and um, lack of gratitude and all of that stuff. They just don't. Mm. So you have this inherent conflict. So I'm saying all that to say, Mr. Producer, that uh, obviously we deal with whatever the makeup of the addict is at that moment in time when they're presented to us. We just deal with whatever it is. But I just wanted to see if I was I the only one that was noticing <clears throat> that there may have been a change in the addict. Yeah, no, I, I would say you're definitely not the only one that noticed that. Um, but I think it dates back to kind of, like you said, maybe 15 years back where where we started to notice a shift. And while at that time uh, the shift was palatable and notable, that that shift is now kind of the norm. This is This is now what what the team has adapted to working with and adjusted to, to helping is this type of presentation. Mm. Well, we'll just keep moving on and see what happens. That's right. That's all. That's all we can do. Like, like, uh, like we have said, and, and, sees itself to be true so many times in the field. You you work with what you're presented. Yep. Gotta meet the client where they're at. And continue to call them out where necessary. Right. Right. And hopefully we won't be told that's that's too harsh for today. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. 
Exactly. Mr. Producer, where the hell are our clients going to live when they finish treatment in this Bay Area? Oh, boy. Yeah, we uh, we are we are ending the show with the and full disclosure. And obviously we are talking about it from the context of where are the recovering addicts that go through our program successfully and are now trying to transition back out of the real world successfully as productive members of society. Uh, because you know, so we're talking about it through our lens and our angle. But with full disclosure, yep. anybody listening ought to know that this is not just a crisis for for the recovering addict. This is a crisis, uh, generally speaking, for anybody who lives in the Bay Area uh, who is not either working for a company that is paying them uh, six figures and deep into the six figures. Because even 100K today is definitely not what it was 10 years ago. And, uh, and if you don't already own a home uh, with, with the way rent is out here. So obviously the host and I will be speaking about this um, from, from the angle of the recovering addict because uh, that is what our show is about and that's what we do. But we are not blind to the fact that folks beyond the world of addiction, uh, quote-unquote, normal, hardworking people um, are, are experiencing and struggling with the same crisis. So I just, I just wanted to put that out there. Um, but, yeah, to, to get back to our specific point of view, uh, that's an excellent question. That is an excellent question. Where on earth are they going to live? Because many of the, from what I see, and working in the recovery residence branch, uh, of the program, I do get to see uh, many of uh, of the clients who've been through the residential arm and are doing well in the intensive outpatient arm and, and maybe transferring to to a, um, a lower level outpatient drug free uh, and and transitioning back into society. You know these these folks are getting entry level jobs, right? They're getting jobs as waiters at restaurants or. Uh, doing food delivery services and things of this nature. And um, even with uh, a housing voucher, say, from some sort of county entity that is prepared to help them pay their first three months' rent or pay their deposit or the different housing programs out there that for a year, uh, you know, maybe uh, they'll break it into a year where the first quarter of the year they pay – 100% 100% and then 75% the next quarter and then 50% the next quarter and the last quarter is 25% and then after that they're expected to pay for themselves. Um, these are not jobs that, that they're obtaining that they can even um, fathom finding a place to rent uh, in, in the Bay Area. It is, I believe I saw Fox News with a report or CBS News with a report um Maybe about a week ago, and I didn't. Uh, I didn't read the entire story. It was a banner that quickly shot across the screen of my phone. Uh, but that some policymaker or politician or bill that was going to come forward had a quote unquote uh, solution. Did they say it was like a solution, or or um, one a part of a solution to the housing crisis in the Bay Area? 
was to make bunk beds in kind of shared living spaces available and that for one, not the entire bunk bed, but for either the top or the bottom bunk, uh, $1,200 a month for, <laughs> for one of two one of two mattresses on a bunk bed. And I thought to myself, wow, is this, is this a serious bill? Is, is there seriously a politician stating we, we have made progress and this is going to be a step in the right direction in solving the housing crisis in the Bay Area? $1,200 a month for one of two mattresses, a bunk bed hole? People are spending the same amount, if not more, <clears throat> to rent space in backyards and living out of tents. Right. A, a lot of the, right. you know, people working at the various Googles and Facebooks and whatnots. Um, I don't know, Mr. Producer. I just, I don't, I don't know what the answer is um, because it's, to me, it's moving, even though the, the rate of increase has slowed down because um, you don't hear them talking about it all the time, about how the housing keeps going up and up and up. But it, it's still going up and up and up, especially in the rental market. Um, oh, housing, yeah, even worse yeah, in the rental market. Yeah, housing prices have kind of cooled, but they're still going up, but it's just not at the same rate they were, which is obscene. Um, right. <clears throat> but... Um, you know, one one of the most important things for someone that's new in their recovery, and like you said, you know, transitioning to independence and and and, and whatnot, you want them to have a stable place to live. Um, the very last thing you want is for someone to end up on the street um, and have their recovery threatened because of their their inability, not their lack of ability, but just the inability of them to find stable and affordable housing. When I say affordable, I don't mean the, the I'll just use the powers that be term of affordable housing, because even affordable housing for that they say, say is not affordable. Um, so I don't know who's affordable right. that they're talking about. Um, so, you know, programs try and do what they can do. We have transitional housing, you have recovery residences and things of that nature. But at some point, people, you know, transition out of those, you know, temporary living arrangements, um, even though they may stay there for two years. But at some point, they want to, you know, they want to move out and try and find their own place or a shared place. Um, and it's, it was... Very hard. Five years ago was very hard. So here we are, five right. years later, and it's it's basically impossible. We've reached impossibility. Right, which so, and 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 literally, and for you know, for folks who who do not live in the Bay Area or in the Peninsula, and I know we we get sometimes some folks listening to the show uh, from New York or from the East Coast, but no, like the word impossible. Uh, is not overstated in this context. Um, I mean, we have, we have people paying $2,500 a month to live in a landlord's garage. Um, it's, 
it is, it is absolute insanity uh, what it has come to to you know to put to put some things maybe in a perspective for the for the folks who will listen to this in the archive that are from the East Coast. Um, there were there was an apart or some apartments advertised on Craigslist recently. Um, I think one in Redwood City, which is, which is where one of our programs is located, and the other in Palo Alto, which is where another branch of our program is located. And there was a one-bedroom apartment at approximately 900 square feet, renting for $6,500 a month. And and just to put that in context. The duplex that I lived in for 17 years, raised my daughters in, uh, was a little less than 900 square feet. And that was a two-bedroom. Yeah. And we were paying, when we left, I think I was paying um, 13. Yeah. 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 When I first so that, when I first yeah, that, moved that, that, in when I first moved in I was paying six twenty five. Right. Right. So over seventeen years it went up close to thirteen, which to me was reasonable because every time you raised the rent it was only like fifty dollars. So if you do the math. Right, sure. You know. Um but sixty five hundred for a um a uh, 900 square foot one bedroom. So I don't know if what I'm about to tell you is worse, because Facebook, you know, built some built a whole bunch of apartments near their whole plaza. And I was pretty interested in knowing when they were done. You know, like what are they gonna you know rent these apartments for? I didn't know if they were building them sure. for the public or building them for their people and you know whatever. So when they were done, I went to their you know, went to their leasing website. 375 square foot studio was $3,075 a month. Yeah, yeah, right. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? It, it makes that we, uh, I was looking, um, uh, doing some research. We had, uh, you know, we've had some individuals here. Uh, you know, Daly City is about as far north as San Mateo County gets. Uh, and some of the clients of the recovery residents looking in the Daly City area, and and a 450 square foot studio uh, for two thousand dollars a month, a studio, right? And so uh, obviously, <laughs> compared to the the Facebook studio, makes the Daly City studio sound sound like a steal. But at the end of the day, a 450 square foot studio, you're essentially living in a a large living room for two thousand dollars a month. So, folks, I, I believe uh, I believe that our host, our faithful host, has dropped out. Uh, as I said at the beginning, I believe uh, we made all the listeners aware that once again we were dealing with some sort of technical issues. Um, blog talk, not fans of us being grandfathered into a price that no longer exists. Hey. 
perhaps the owners uh, of Blog Talk uh, also live here in the Bay Area, and due to the housing crisis we're talking about, uh, need to raise their prices as far as what you can get in a subscription uh, to to run your little podcast through Blog Talk. So uh, I'm back. I'm well, back. it sounds like we we may have the host back here, but. Um, but yeah, so so essentially paying two thousand dollars a month to live in a living room uh, is essentially yeah what's happening here, and obviously the Facebook one uh, even worse off. So uh, I'll tell you though, smart of of Facebook at least on its surface and during this economic climate uh, to to find themselves kind of halfway dipping into the real estate game. Um, because uh, just another just another source of of income for them, and so uh, you know, and I'm not sure if this will be the light at the end of the tunnel. I'm certainly not a uh, micro economist by any stretch, uh, but everybody usually understands the the basics of supply and demand, uh, and obviously the demand to live in the Bay Area um, over the past 10, 15, 20 years has been great because of the tech boom uh, and many folks wanting to get jobs at these large tech giants that are really printing money uh, and are able to pay their employees as though they are printing money. Um, And so an influx of people with a shortage of housing uh, created this kind of demand in housing where landlords knew essentially I can charge whatever I want and somebody will pay for it because the folks uh, making big bucks at these tech companies, um, you know, sneeze at a $5,000 a month housing bill. Uh, and so you do see construction and development like wildfire here on the peninsula. You, you can't drive through any city uh, or, or you just, you know, El Camino is a street that we have. I don't know if there's a street akin to El Camino in, in New York or, or in the, you know, in, in the greater New York metropolitan area. But essentially out here, El Camino will take you or can take you from San Jose all the way to San Francisco, from the, the southernmost big city to the northernmost big city and the peninsula all the way through. And you can't drive El Camino uh, through all the cities that connect San Jose to San Francisco without seeing major housing developments going up on the left and right side of the street. Uh, and so you'd imagine when the housing kind of catches up, to the demand and also as the demand slips because, uh, you know, back in the day, we'll, we'll say we'll say the Silicon Valley on uh, the, the tech boom when, when Fairchild Semiconductors took over Texas Instruments uh, with the silicon chip as the number one leader in producing silicon chips in order to work uh, in the Silicon Valley and for one of these companies, you had to live in the Bay Area. Um, and so same with Google and Apple and Facebook and all those companies that, that are headquartered out here, this is where you had to live to work for these companies. But now these companies are not stupid, and they are building campuses in cities all over the United States. And so what you're finding more and more is um, people realizing they don't need to live in the Bay Area and pay these astronomical prices to work for one of these companies. Uh, because they can hold a job at one of their satellites in other cities that are more affordable. And, uh, and then you have all of these developments going up. And so you, you would imagine at some point 
the seesaw will start to come back in the other direction, but at least as we're living in it right now, that, that doesn't seem to be anytime soon. In order for rents to come down, there would have to be a dramatic drop in demand. Right. A dramatic drop. <clears throat> now, there's a lot of immorality going on, though, because if you have, let's say you own an apartment building and you have, you know, some good tenants and, you know, they're, you know, in their, you know, paying their rent or what have you, and you start to try to get rid of them because you know you can get better, you know, better uh, charge higher prices because of the demand that's out there um, and have no care or concern for your tenants that's been living with you for 10 to 15 years, paying their rent on time, blah, 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 raising their families and trying just trying to survive. And uh, all that just, you know, you know, no one cares about that. So, you know, there's got to be some morality mixed in there also. Um, I always used to say, I don't, I don't understand. So their property tax didn't go up. Um, it wasn't like, let's say, if they didn't refinance and, you know, as a result, they have a bigger mortgage now they have to pay. So they have to raise their rents to cover it. Um, so if nothing major changed other than demand, and so I can take advantage of that demand and make more profit, um, who gets the, the, you know, the short end of the stick in that? You know, the people that right. are displaced. And where do they have to go? Because like you said, I mean, there's a lot of jobs of various sorts in, in the Bay Area. It's actually a, a job seeker's market. You know, they can right. just, uh, uh, I don't think I'll apply at you. I'll apply at you. And you know what? If I don't like your attitude when I come in for the interview, I'm not showing back up. <laughs> you know? So, That's exactly right. It, you know, it's a job seeker's market. Um, but what I'm curious about is like, okay, well, why don't these companies build satellites out in the, uh, in the valley areas, you know, on the outskirts? where a lot of these people now have to live and try and travel into and commute for three hours one way rather than putting a plant or whatever out in Modesto or Manteca or who knows where, somewhere out there. Sure. Because another thing our uh, folks from other parts of the country don't know is that uh, our public transportation out here sucks. Oh, so. So everybody's in their car. And let, me, let me give a quick sidebar to that, and, and this might make you smile as a New York native. But I, I, I grew up in San Jose and, and here in the Bay Area, and so I never knew any different as it pertains to public transportation. The definition of public transportation is what I grew up with and knew here in the Bay Area, and I'd never really traveled outside the Bay Area. But I always heard people trash the public transportation system out here and how terrible it was. And it wasn't until I visited New York, and I, I can't remember if it was my first or second time to New York, uh, and, and experiencing the public transportation out there where there was almost, at least in my experience, uh, Mr. Host, there was almost not even a need to check the schedule. Because wherever you were going, like uh, in Penn Station, which is the, the station that I, that I was in, mm -hmm. uh, wherever you were going, it didn't matter if you missed 
whatever subway just came because there was one coming every two minutes. Yep. So the only real need I saw to check the schedule was to see what time the last train was coming, like 2 a.m. or whatever the case may right. be. But if it was during the day, you didn't even need to check the schedule. You just walked to whatever terminal or whatever train you needed to jump on, and it didn't matter if you saw the taillights of the one just pulling out because within two minutes another one was coming. And right. because public transportation worked that way out there, it drove the cost of taxis way down because there's not really a need to take a taxi. So I remember taking a taxi all over, uh, you know, you know the city better than me, but I, I was going from the Empire State Building to maybe Madison Square Garden or something like that. And the cab ride was dirt cheap compared to a taxi here in the Bay Area where I would have paid maybe 10 times that amount. And, uh, you know, other than the cab ride making me fear for my life at a couple of turns and a couple of lights uh, and seeing the driver uh, put that horn to use and, uh, and, and give people the one finger salute at a couple of stop signs. uh, It it was, it was phenomenal. And, And it was then at that point in my life, I understood, wow, I can see why people say public transportation in the Bay area is terrible because, this is incredible. You, there's not even a need to check a schedule. First of all, uh, uh, even though I'm embarrassed to admit this, because even my sister gets on me because of this, I don't really know my way around uh, Manhattan that well. For the okay. simple fact, right. <laughs> I lived in Queens, and the simple fact we had no reason to visit Manhattan except to attend Nick games. Right, the, the garden, so, right. Right, so we never went to Manhattan for anything. Okay. Um, okay. We just we knew how to get to specific, you know, where the garden was, and and maybe one or two other places other than that. But we didn't live there, so we had no reason to be there. Um, you pretty much stuck to your borough, so to speak. Um, but no, I hear exactly what you're saying. And we certainly, by the way, I know you're living large. We certainly couldn't afford cabs, so it was a blessing that. You can travel all the way from where we lived in Rochdale to the other side of Queens for two, take two buses, and it was seventy-five cents for each bus, dollar fifty. Yeah, a lot of money back then still. Sure. But the fact that you can go outside, walk to the bus stop, and even if it was freezing cold outside, you knew that within five minutes, ten minutes tops, depending on the time of the day. So if it wasn't rush hour, maybe five minutes you had to wait for a bus, and the buses yep. ran twenty-four-seven. So, yes, if it was 3 o'clock oh, in the morning, you might have to wait an hour and a half for the bus. But the bus was running. So right, that would be the only right. time you would check a schedule. Is it coming at 3 or is it coming at 4.30? That was it. Yeah. But yep. no, I hear what you're saying. Absolutely. By the way, the um, the one-finger salute in New York has really a different meaning than it does everywhere else. <laughs> It's it's more it's more of a um. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) All right, yeah, I can I can see that I can see that. So. Yeah, I can I can tell you on that one cab ride. I mean, I thought I thought for sure. You know, there were there five to seven times we're getting in a fender bender for sure. I mean, this guy was putting his brakes 
and that gas pedal, every time the light turned green, I think we're burning rubber, and every time we're approaching a red light, we're inches from the car in front of us or, or a pedestrian jumping into the crosswalk early. And and not and not only that, see they can drive like that because they know everybody else who's in their own personal car is going to yield. They're going right, to yield to the ta- to the taxis because the taxis you can't play chicken with the taxis. No, they're going. Yeah, you're not going to win that one. <laughs> so, uh, definitely, but yeah, yeah, so. The housing crisis, you know, a, a real thing and perhaps just a little extra difficult for folks, you know, graduating or completing the residential or inpatient parts of their programs with us, trying to transition back out into society, working an honest 40-hour week at your, your local subway or your AT&T phone store and uh, with with zero options. Right. When it, when it, and, you know, and maybe this is a topic for another show, but, you know, the, 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 multi, the multiple layers to that being that, well, wow, so now I'm having to, you know, share a space with a ton of people or, or live in someone's garage or, you know, live out of my car, whatever the case may be, and, and how that can perpetuate, uh, you know, the problem of addiction uh, and get right back into the cycle because it feels hopeless. Like, wow, I've gone through uh, a year plus of treatment from residential to, to outpatient and everything else. Uh, I'm back in school. I've got myself an honest 40-hour-a-week job, and um, and I'm living out of my car because I can't afford to live anywhere. I, I've done everything right and and still can't even get a get a studio apartment to live in. Yep. And we're talking studio apartments so that, you know, that's for the addict that doesn't have the girlfriend or the wife or a child. So, And then when you start thinking about families, you can forget about it. There was a time where a lot of people in recovery would do shared living. So, you know, maybe three or four people might come together and rent a three-bedroom house or something like that. Um, and And they all chipped in equally. And it was doable. Um, that's absolutely not doable. Now I see, you know, three bedroom, two bath homes, um, you know, they want $9,000, if not more a month. Yep. Yep. So we did, you know, I'll close with this. Um, you know, so yeah, people in recovery is a concern for them being able to find housing in order to continue the stability in their recovery. Um, it impacts employees. Um, we, when we talk to the county, I mean, they, they, you know, they have the same issue. They, you know, trying to attract people to work for the county and so on and so forth. And they're trying to compete with other counties and so on and so forth. I said, well, there's only one small difference with you guys, though, in the county is that you guys have the ability to pay whatever you think is necessary to attract that employee to live and and for them to be able to live to the best that you can in this area, okay? Because you function off of you know the taxpayer revenue. You know what I'm saying? They're not a private entity; they're a public entity. So they have, you know, in theory, they have the resources to to do whatever they need to do in order to compete. Whereas you know, 
a certainly a nonprofit, there's not an unlimited, you know, there's not an unlimited well for you to tap. So you don't have the same resources as the county to try and mitigate some of that um, for your employees. And they they understood that they got that, but it doesn't mean that they're the that, that it's their responsibility to entirely solve it. And and I I as harsh as that sounds, I get it. Right. I get it. But what we do expect is for them to do something each, you know, every year to to help offset. So making sure that all the providers get a cost of living increase, you know, whatever that is going to be, but that it's every year so that you always have something to offset the natural cost increase. But that's a whole other story. Don't want to get started on that one. Um, So there you have it, Mr. Producer, three burning questions. Three burning questions and some uh, some excellent insights and answers and and ponderings and everything else for said questions. So that was a that was a good one, uh, a good show for the archives and uh, and one that I'm sure. Hey, you know, maybe a, a year from now, two years from now, God willing, we're still doing the show. Uh, one that we can look back at and say, hey. Uh, time to revisit, you know, maybe it's something that we revisit annually and see if we've got any traction or movement in any direction. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. All right, sir. Well, if if that's all you got, I will sign I will sign us off. Wow, it looks like uh <laughs> just just in time, just as I'm saying that our host drops off again, but we were done with the show anyway. Uh, so I will go ahead and sign us off again. We appreciate everybody who uh, who called in to listen today or anyone who will be listening to the archives. Uh, as always, we appreciate the ongoing support. Uh, we'll probably be back at it again, uh, you know, either at the end of this month or the beginning of September, uh, perhaps right around when the NFL season kicks off officially. Uh, but until then, we wish everybody's a productive handful of weeks some safe and fun couple of weekends and we will catch you all on the other side. If I can reach the stars
that's our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio. Until then, baby, I'm